starting a series for the summer uh, today out of the book of Malachi. How many of you have read the book of Malachi? Like five of you. Okay, cool. That means it's going to be new to the rest of you. This will be exciting. Uh, but we're, we're, we're going to do this series that we're calling Dead Religion. And the book of Malachi really addresses just dead religious practices uh, within the people of Israel. It's, it's written by a prophet nearly 500 years, right around 500 years before Jesus shows up. And so we're going to go through the book of Malachi, uh, and it's a book of prophecy, and it just addresses empty religious practices, and I'm sure some of us have seen that. And so we're going to look at what God was so upset about with the nation of Israel. But the way I want to start this series, though, is I want to start by asking, how many of you, you put your hand up, if you would describe yourself as a control freak? How many control freaks? Don't look at other people. (laughs) Some people pointing. I can't point handful of you. Uh, Some of us have uh, a hard time. Right. Yeah. You can't do that. (laughs) She has to self-identify. You can't identify her for her. Uh, How many, some of us have a hard time sitting in a passenger seat of a car. How many of you have a hard time sitting in a passenger seat of a car, right? Same group of people have a hard time sitting in. My dad, when I was growing up, if he was sitting in the, in the uh, passenger seat of, of the car and my mom was driving, he had this like imaginary brake that he would stomp because he just couldn't stand to not be in control. Um, and, and so, but in my career as a pilot, I have come across a lot of people who are control freaks, right? Many people are not afraid necessarily to fly. They're just afraid to not be in control. And so they're like not necessarily scared of flying air, in airplanes. They're just afraid of the fact that they're not in control. And if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, if I'm on an airplane, I want to be, I don't want to be sitting in the back either. I'd much rather be up front, but the difference between you and me is I'd know what to do when I got up there, <laughs> that, <laughs> that I would know how to, to fly the airplane. And you all are probably a lot like me, right? Like at some level, we all have this like desire to like be in control of our circumstance. Like we don't like to be out of control. It's not a comfortable place for us. You guys, are, you guys are probably like me. And I, w- I want to give you an example to prove that you all have some level of control freakness in your life. How many of you know what this picture is? Go to the picture. How many know what that is? Vending machine, right? So when you walk up to a vending machine, you enter into a contract. You didn't know that, but that's what happens. You enter into this unwritten contract that you walk up, You put money into the machine, you make a decision about what you want, and the the vending machine upholds its end of the contract by spitting out what you've selected, right? This is the contract that you've entered into. You do your part, now the vending machine does its part. How many of you have experienced this? (laughs) Have you ever had this experience? I I spent way too much time watching videos of uh, vending machine fails. and, and I couldn't find the exact right one, but there was this, this guy had, uh, had chips, right? And they fell and they were stuck. And so what do you do? Well, you, you buy the thing above it that's heavy, right? Well, I mean, that's, first of all, you bang on it, you shake it, right? And you hope, uh, did you know like vending, ma- what, what did I, I hear? Vending machines falling on people kills more people, I think, than shark bites in a year. <laughs> it's crazy. So you shake it and then. You go, well, you know, here's all my chips. There's nothing really heavier. But you would buy something on top. And I watched this guy buy two Reese cups. 
they both fell on the bag of chips and just stayed. <laughs> I was like, you're having a bad, bad day, right? Like, we, <laughs> you, it, what's so maddening is you kind of have a sense that, like, your sense of justice has been violated, right? Like, I did my part. I put my money in. I punched the button. It's supposed to come out, right? And, and you, you sort of have a sense that, that like, you you just like the exchange didn't work the way it was supposed to, <laughs> and I'm a little bit upset about the fact that the video that the vending machine uh, exchange didn't work out. And the vending machine experience is the way many of us look at God, and many of us deal in relationship with God as the vending machine. Right? I uphold my part. I put in my church attendance. I put in my Bible reading. I put my money in the basket, or I do the whole text to give thing, right? I give my money. I put in small group attendance, and I expect God to respond with whatever I need, right? Like, and at some level, wouldn't you say that, like, that you could relate to that? I mean, let's not be too religious here, right? I c- I've been in that situation where I expect that, God, I've done a lot. I moved. I sold my house. I quit my job. I moved here to start a church. So shouldn't you kind of come through for me a little bit? I mean, let me be real honest. Like, that's my experience sometimes. How many of you can relate to that experience? It's like, you know, how come, God, you're not really coming through? God, I've attended church faithfully for years. Why aren't you healing me or my family members or my friends? God, I've given to sacrificially to the church since I became a Christian. How come you didn't come through with that job when I needed money? We've probably been in that situation before. God, I've read the Bible every single day this year. I've been faithful, so why am I still single? Why am I still in need? I've even claimed John 15, 7. As my life verse in the Bible where it says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. You know, the church, we as a Facebook page, we posted that this past week. And somebody responded to that and said, I'm going to claim that so I can get caught. We've been in that situation, haven't we? And when we experience these things, we sort of go through life feeling cheated. Like God has somehow cheated us. Like, God, I did my part and you're cheating me. You're stealing from me. I showed up, but God let me down. And we start going through the motions. And we do religion, and we do our religious things, but our heart's really not in it because we're just afraid that if we expose our heart to this, we might get let down again. Any of you feel that way? Have you ever felt the way where you're like, I am too afraid to expose my heart because it might get hurt just a little bit too much? The problem with this whole thing is that we're the initiator in the relationship, aren't we? God, I did my thing. I'm the boss, and I expect God to work for me. And it turns out that we are made in God's image, but we try to make God in our image. God, you need to be the kind of God I want you to be. And there's a word for this. This word is religion. It's humanity's attempt to control God. That every last one of us wants to, we want God to do what we want God to do, don't we? I sure do. And cover to cover through the whole Bible, 
That's not what we see. God rejects this kind of religious relationship as false. This is not the kind of relationship God is after. True relationship with God is not religion. It's covenant. Covenant relationship is the opposite of a religious relationship. Covenant relationship means God is in charge. God initiates and God calls the shots. And as we begin our series in Malachi, we're going to see an instance in Israel's history where they were trying to get engage in a religious relationship with God, even though he had invited them into covenant relationship. God had chosen Israel for himself, so he pr- promised to provide for and care for and protect Israel. And in exchange, Israel was to live for God, was to live to glorify God, to serve God, and to demonstrate to the world what kind of God he is. But they didn't really hold up to their end of the bargain, and so... God allowed them to be carried off into exile. And after a time away, Israel's allowed to return. And the temple's rebuilt. And they begin to live life again in the land as God's people. But it wasn't long before they're just going through the motions again. And by the time Malachi shows up, they're just doing religious activities. They're participating in the forms of their faith without the heart behind it. And their observance of Jewish tradition was not a response to God's great grace and invitation but it instead had become a religious observance in order to get God to do what they wanted or to keep God off their back. True relationship with God is not religion, but it's covenant. Now, the book of Malachi, before we read this passage, it's a book of prophecy. And we talked a few weeks ago what that means. But the prophet speaks to Israel on God's behalf. But all but the last two verses of this book, they're all addressing current issues. They're calling Israel to account based on how God had revealed himself before. The last two verses are like foretelling, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? That we, we tend to think of prophecy as sort of like Christian fortune telling, like this is what I see for your future. But typically, actually what prophecy primarily is, is going based on how I've seen God reveal himself before, I know what he's going to do in the future. It's applying God's past revelation to present circumstances. And that's what we find in the book of Malachi. It's laid out sort of like a court case with uh, six charges. God brings six charges to the nation of Israel. And each charge comes with supporting evidence. And so in this series, we're going to look at each of those charges. But we're going to begin with the first one. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 1, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles right up here by me. And that will be horribly intimidating to walk in front of everybody and grab a Bible. But you can do it if you like. John, the man. Nope. Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. And today we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 1. Here's what it says. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, they say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. 
They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, what we read here is covenant language. God begins by invoking the reality that he is in a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, that the basis of relationship with God is covenant, that it's not a religious basis. So God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, for many of us, that word's going to come off really, really strong, isn't it? You go, I don't think God hates anybody. How do I I reconcile this idea that, you know, God, I thought God loved everybody, for God so loved the world. How does it say that God hated Esau? And it seems to make God's love dependent on circumstance as opposed to who he is, which isn't what the rest of the Bible seems to say. And some of us will read that and go, I'm not really sure how to take this. But scholars agree, like unanimously agree, that what's being communicated here is not that God actively hates Esau, but what he's saying is that he's in covenant with Israel as opposed to Esau. So he's saying, I've loved Israel, I'm in covenant with Israel, and compared to that, it would look as though I hated Esau. It's, this, it's similar to Luke 14 where, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't saying you have to hate your family to be a disciple. That's actually opposite to what Jesus would desire for your life. What Jesus is saying is, based on your devotion to him, what you do toward your family should feel like it's so, the gap is so big that you must hate your family. You don't love them the way that you love Jesus. Does that make sense? It's sort of like it's love and hate as the, as the op- opposite end. It's not actively I'm going to chase down because I hate them. It's like the opposite of covenant. I'm in covenant with Jacob. I'm not in covenant with Esau. That's what's being communicated here. Now, some of you are going to look at the rest of the verses and say, but Derek, it sure looks like he hates Esau, right? Like if you take a look at it, it's like he destroys their land. He calls them wicked. He's like all this stuff, right? But in context, the context is this, that when Israel was exiled and taken out of the land, Esau, or the Edomites, it's the same people, Edomites are basically, they, it's, it's a, a word to use to refer to red people. Whenever you, <laughs> whenever you had uh, Esau, if you go back to the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau had a reddish hue to him. And so they, his people became the Edomites, the red people. Um, it's the same group of people. When, whenever uh, Israel was, was on their way out, God was judging them and he was, he was exiling them. Instead of helping their brothers, they laughed at them. And then while they were weak in, in, in uh, vulnerable, God, uh, or, uh, Esau then sort of took advantage of their vulnerability and moved into their land and kind of took their stuff. And so God judged Esau and the Edomites because of the way that they dealt with their brother. So all of that stuff happened because of how uh, the Edomites dealt with God's covenant people, which that's a whole other sermon. I mean, I was talking to Justin and Tyler a little bit about this this week, and I'm like, you know, what, what exactly is God saying here? And there's probably something along the lines of if God is bringing judgment on somebody, who are you to take advantage of them and their weakness? 
There's probably some of that. That God dealt harshly with them because of that. But I want to come back just a little bit. So what I really need you to understand before we get started is this is covenant language. It's saying that relationship with God is not religion, it's covenant. And so if we go back to verse 2, Malachi begins his first charge to the nation of Israel. And that charge is in verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Before God starts dealing with the, the misdirections and the, the failings and the, the, the religious nonsense of the nation of Israel, he starts and he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. I have loved you. You need to know that I have loved you because this is the basis for the rest of my charges. This is the basis for me calling you to account on all these other things that I have loved you. In fact, all of life with God depends on this. Before we ever talk about anything else in relationship to God, we must begin with this fact. God has loved you. God is the initiator. And the basis of his initiation is his love for you. If you're in a real relationship with God, it's because he loves you. He loved you before you were created. He loved you before you did anything to deserve it. All real relationship with God exists this way. God loves you and invites you into relationship with himself. Some of you need to know that. Some of you up here, right? How many of you are like me? I know God loves me up here, but it, man, it's hard to get in here, isn't it? That's like the, the hardest 18-inch trip is to get that knowledge from your head to your heart. Many of us struggle with this. We prefer a religious relationship with God, don't we? We kind of prefer to know what the outcome is going to be and we put us in control. We would love to be loved by God based on our merits, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you love to know that at least I did enough? Or at least if God rejected me, it was because I didn't do enough, but I at least had some influence. Wouldn't you love it if your relationship with God was based on religion. Some of you are shaking your head no. I, I agree with you, but we tend, to, we tend to lean that way. And if we don't measure up, at least we had a chance to influence it. Or what we tend to do as a society is decide the standard isn't fair, so we shouldn't pay attention to it anyway. Which is what most of us do. But think about it for a minute. The deep desire inside of every last one of us is to be fully known, and fully loved. That's the deepest desire in our heart is to be fully known and fully loved. But because the brokenness of humani humanity, every last one of us has stuff inside that we don't want anybody to know about. I'm, I keep finding stuff inside myself I don't want people to know about. I don't know about you. And we have a choice to make. We can either share the deepest parts of ourselves with other people and run the risk of being rejected or we can hide those things and be accepted, but not be accepted for who we really are. I bet that's the story of most of us, if not all of us in this room today. That you face a decision all the time. Am I going to be real in this situation? Am I going to bring my real self into the situation, warts and all? Am I really going to let people know how jacked up I really am? Or am I going to pretend to not be that way? 
in order that people would accept me and live the rest of my life in shame knowing that they don't love the real me. That's how we live life, isn't it? We have stuff in our lives and we just don't want, we can't stand the thought that we would be rejected. And so we hide it. We live in shame for our whole lives, right? We live in this duplicity of like, people don't really know who I am, but if they knew who I was, I'd be rejected. So we either live with rejection and integrity or we live with acceptance and shame. This is the choice that we all face. And God is the only being in the universe who combines integrity with acceptance. Only being. God's love for you is based solely on who he is. I mean, isn't that good news? I mean, like, I mean, you can sit there if you want, but isn't that good news? Like, God loves you not because of who you are and all the jacked up crap in your life. God loves you because who he is. That this was, that his love for you was given before you did anything to earn it or lose it. Like, that was a statement of who he is toward you, and that would never change. based on the degrees on your wall it's not based on your jail sentence i mean isn't that good news it's not based on the disease that you have or don't have it's not based on your addictions it's not based on how well you keep commandments god's love for you is based solely on who he is and that never changes God initiated loving relationships with you based on his unchanging nature before you could ever screw it up. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing? With God, you can combine an acceptance and integrity. I don't have anything else to tell you. The, the rest of these, all of these pages say the same thing. Over, I'll just keep saying that. I got like 10 more minutes. I'll just keep saying the same thing, Okay. Because God's love for you is not dependent on any changing thing, you can move into being open and honest with God about who you really are and what you've really done. And that's where the real power for change in your life comes. You see, until you can bring things into the light and be honest with God about what they are, they can never be transformed to healing. As long as you keep pretending they're not there, God's like, I really can't do much with that. And the reason we, un, uh, we avoid unpacking the mess of our lives is because we believe we're going to be rejected by it, don't we? That maybe God might reject us. Maybe we're the one being in the universe that he uh, is going to decide to judge based on your own conduct. But God's love and acceptance is not dependent on your mess. You can take it out and let him make the mess. Let me make this a little bit more practical. <coughs> In our culture, pornography and addiction to pornography has become extremely pervasive. It's not just men, it's women as well. And the statistics don't really change for those inside the church versus out. When, it look, when you look at addiction to pornography, people sitting in this room are not different from people sitting out here. It's so pervasive in our culture, which means there are people in churches all over who are pretending like this isn't an issue. 
They're pretending like they don't struggle with this because they know deep down, it's like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have this thing, but I do, and I feel powerless to change it. And so I'm going to come to church, I'm going to put on a happy face, and I'm going to pretend like I don't have this issue. I'm going to pretend like I don't struggle with it. Because I know it's not supposed to have a hold on my life, but I feel powerless to change it. And so I just keep stumbling, I just keep falling, and I keep pretending, and I got to keep clearing my browser history, and I got to keep pretend, I got to get a new computer because my other one's all messed up from all the stuff that I've looked at. And we pretend like it's not an issue. But deep down, I feel the strain of living a lie, right? Does this describe you? You don't have to shake your head or put your hand up. Statistically, many of us in this room deal with this. If you're not by yourself, well, the good news is you're not by yourself. If that describes you, I have some really, really, really good news. God's love for you is not dependent on your ability to have victory over pornography. It's not. In fact, the only way you're ever actually going to have true victory over pornography is through God's love, is your ability to be open and honest and completely forthright with all the stuff of your life, and you bring it into the light, and you hand it to God, and you say, I can't do anything with this. And then you receive his unfailing and unchanging love. It's the love of God that empowers you to be transformed, to have true victory over pornography. Anything else, any short of being transformed by the love of God in this issue, or any issue for that matter, anything short, you'll be white knuckling like, three days, I've been free for three days, I feel real free, right? You guys have seen people that are like, I quit smoking. (laughs) I haven't smoked a cigarette in nine days, Right? You've seen people like that, right? And that's what you get. If you can do, in your own power, you're going to find yourself fighting and struggling. And it's like, the only way that gets transformed is you go, God, here's the thing that I can't deal with. And I'm going to be really honest. I, this has a real big hold on me. And I can't get free. Would you do something about it? And until you can do that and bring it into the light and the love of God, you'll never be transformed. It'll never happen. There's a stream, a stream of Christian thought that says, well, we got to make you feel bad first. Right? You got to know how rotten you are and how much of a worm you are and how you're going to burn in hell so that you'll have motivation to change. Right? And if you don't have anybody around you telling you how much of a worm you are and how messed up you are and how disgusting you are, you have this self-talk like, which is, I've fallen again but I have to make myself feel bad enough to go to God, right? Have you, have you done this one? I mean, I'm speaking from experience. So this is not me like, this is, I, I've, I've been through this, right? Like I have to feel bad enough for God to forgive me. Let me go to God once I feel bad. And once I feel bad enough, then I have earned God's forgiveness, right? Because I felt bad enough. And this kind of philosophy that just, it, it just is, it's a short-circuited, it's a messed up twisting of what's real. When you're in a covenant relationship with God, and you know that God loves you, when you show up in that place and you say, God, here it is again, you'll feel bad. 
but it's because you, he continues to love you in spite of that. That the transformation doesn't come from guilt or shame or fear. The transformation comes because of love. That God loves you. How could he love me with all this stuff? That's the way you get free of that stuff. And nobody else can create that in you. I can't make you feel bad enough to be transformed by love. You know why? Nobody can. And it's not really healthy anyway. True relationship with God is not religion but covenant. Here's the beautiful part of the whole thing. And I'll bring this to a end. The beautiful part of the whole thing is when you begin to know and understand that God's love isn't changed by your actions, you will experience true freedom. And you'll be able to share your story with other people because even if they reject you, you know that God does. But here's the deal. I mean, maybe they will, but chances are really good they're not going to reject you. Chances are really, really good that you're going to experience one of these two benefits, at least two. First of all, when you share your struggles and your failures with other people, it breaks the power of whatever's holding you. You see, shame hides, right? When you experience shame, you go, well, I can't tell anybody about this thing. They'll, they'll think things of me, and so I can't say anything. Sh- like, telling people your story is the exact opposite of shame. The minute you verbalize it, you break the power that it has. That's why, I mean, some people don't like this, but that's why it's good to have a trusted Christian friend that you can be completely honest with, who won't judge you, who won't uh, condemn you, who will uphold you, who will pray for you. Because the minute you share that and you find that they don't judge you, it's broken, right? The power of it is broken. And then they can pray for you. The second benefit is that sharing your struggle is evangelistic in the purest sense of the word. It's evangelistic in the purest sense of the word. It's sharing good news with people, right? When you're able to share with people your struggle, it actually empowers other people to break shame in their life. The minute I stand up and say, hey, I used to struggle with pornography, which is a true statement, by the way. I used to be uh, like just enslaved by pornography. The minute I tell somebody that, they're like, he can say it like I can. And maybe I can come out of the shadows and say that that's something that I do in my life. You break shame for other people by telling your story. But not only that, <coughs> excuse me. When you share about how God is transforming your failures and your weakness, people begin to have hope that maybe if they do, if God's doing that in you, God will do that in me. It has the exact opposite effect. Can you imagine what our neighborhood would look like if we began to share how God is transforming our addictions? Can you imagine what that would look like? I'll bet you we would break the spirit of addiction in this neighborhood if we just started telling people what God is doing with our addictions. I had a conversation with John Gray, the pastor down at Hope, this morning, and I said, John, what's the, in the neighborhood, what's the, like, what are the, the spirits that, that hold people? And he said, addiction imagine if we began to say, hey, I got free of addiction, what it would do in this neighborhood. I bet you we'd see the neighborhood transformed like Oklahoma. Maybe not like Oklahoma. 
Monday, but like, you know, over a very short period of time. But can you imagine what would happen in our city if we began to share how God is overcoming our failures? I'll bet you we would see a spirit of hopelessness broken in this city, that this city would begin to be marked by hope if we were able to share our, how God is fixing our failures. Can you imagine what would happen if our, in our nation if we began to share how God is breaking fear from our lives, how we've engaged with people who are different than us, and I'm alive. It didn't kill me to love somebody who has a different political belief. Can you imagine if God could transform that in us and we would share that, what would happen in our nation? We might actually be able to love people different than us. We might actually see a spirit of fear which just runs rampant in this country, broken if we were able to share what God has done in Zarfield. Can you imagine? I can imagine. Can you imagine what it would look like? And it all starts by knowing that we're loved by God. Last thought. There's something beautiful about the fact that Jesus died for you before you got right. There's something beautiful about that because his love for you is not dependent on your actions. Can you imagine? Before God ever moves forward to deal with with the people of Israel in the book of Malachi, he says, I I love you. And before God ever moves forward in dealing with the things in your life, you need to know that God loves you.